Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores commits career suicide. Whoopi Goldberg gets a copy of the home game. And fake newser-in-chief Jeff Zucker out as president of CNN for banging the help. This is Bold Alpha. Cigar Dave, your global five-star general, alpha male-in-chief, front and center from Command Center Alpha, and I welcome you to Bold Alpha for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Bold Alpha is presented by Davidoff of Geneva and their AVO portfolio of cigars, including the AVO Heritage. Crafted through centuries of tradition, AVO Heritage was developed for the cigar connoisseur seeking a fuller-bodied cigar with strength, complexity, and impeccable smoothness. Savor every note of the spice-laden Avo heritage, available at DavidoffGeneva.com. And by Gurkha, the world's finest cigars, including the new Gurkha Revenant. The five-country fusion of exceptionally aged tobaccos will immediately jumpstart your senses for a cigar journey that only Gurkha can deliver. Offered in both Corojo and Maduro presentations, Fire up a new Gurkha Revenant today. Visit GurkhaCigars.com. Well, first up, Brian Flores, the recently fired head coach of the Miami Flippers. As you can tell, I'm a big Buffalo Bills fan. The Dolphins are longtime rivals in the AFC East going way back, way before New England was our rival. But our longtime rivals, so therefore I call them the Miami Flippers, also referred to as the Miami Dolphins. So Brian Flores gets whacked after three years. He's in the process of interviewing for the New York Giants head coaching job, the Houston Texans, and recently with Sean Payton announcing that he would be stepping down as head coach of the Saints. Flores also interviewing for the New Orleans Saints. And Flores was a little ticked off because he received a, he was interviewing for the job. He, apparently he was going, I think on the 26th and 27th, he was having dinner with the new general manager of the New York Giants, Joe Shane. And the next day on that Friday, he would have his, uh, I believe, second interview with the New York Giants. Well, Bill Belichick apparently... Not apparently he did. He texted Flores, and when you are ha- when you've got a phone, I never just I've got I know people that just put like Brian in their phone. Well, you could have six Brians in there. I always put people's first and last name to make sure there's no confusion. Well, Belichick somehow instead of texting Brian Dable, the new head coach of the New York Football Giants, the four-year offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, instead of texting him saying, "Hey." I hear from Buffalo and the Giants people, you're in. He sends that. He texts the congratulatory message to Brian Flores. And then Flores says, you sure you got the right guy? (laughs) And Belichick replies, oop, fuck, sorry about that. I blew it. Big mistake. Well, Flores pissed because his dream job growing up in New York, his favorite team, the New York Giants, His dream job to be the head coach of the New York Giants. Let me remind Brian Flores, he had a dream job, one of 32 head coaching positions in the National Football League. But he screwed the pooch. 
He screwed the pooch on multiple levels in Miami. But I'll get to that in just a bit. But let's talk about the lawsuit that he filed in on Tuesday, alleging the NFL and the New York football giants, the Miami Flippers, and the Denver Broncos remain rife with racism when it comes to the hiring and retention of black head coaches, coordinators, and general managers. Talking about screwing the pooch and burning the bridges, or burning bridges, Flores, example and exhibit 1A, 1B, 1C. In the lawsuit, they assert the NFL is racially segregated and is managed much like a plantation. A plantation, by the way, where their supposed slaves have an average salary of $2 million bucks, a median salary of $860,000, and a first-year rookie earns $436,000. I'll tell you, the last time I looked at Civil War, pre-Civil War history, talking about slavery, I don't remember any of the black slaves on the plantations getting $436,000 minimum as a first-year rookie or an average salary of $2 million bucks. I don't recall that. So the plantation analogy to me is absolutely outrageous. More on that after I play some sound bites of Brian Flores, who appeared on the CBS Morning Show today. But he goes on in this lawsuit. It says that the owners, none of whom are black, profit substantially from the labor of NFL players, 70% of whom are black. The owners watch, and this is from the lawsuit. The own, and by the way, you didn't hear this on any sports station or sports networks or any other television networks. Why? Because the one thing you have to understand about media, basic media, whether it is news, the evening news, local newscasts, most sportscasts, most local sports presenters or hosts, they're frankly not as smart as I am. That's just the truth. They don't go behind, they don't look for the backstory. They don't read the complaint. I pulled down the lawsuit and I read it. It was pretty easy to read, but most presenters and hosts won't do that. They will just regurgitate what's in the lawsuit without doing any further analysis. This is not shocking. We see this in all forms of whether it's sports, science, politics, the lazy media, as I call them, simply regurgitates a press release, what is told to them, or what attorneys filing a lawsuit state. Instead of saying, let me do my own analysis. I can tell you I've listened to probably five, six sports stations since yesterday, Buffalo and Miami, National ESPN, Fox Sports, Sirius XM. None of them, none of them have done more than a perfunctory analysis. They basically said, oh, Flores has got a huge case. That's it. Oh, the NFL's in trouble. Wrong. Let's look at it from an analytical, legal, logical point of view. Let's not just regurgitate what a couple of of lawyers have to send out in a press release. Within the lawsuit, it states, and I'm quoting here, 
The owners watch the games from atop NFL stadiums in their luxury boxes while their majority black workforce put their bodies on the line every Sunday, taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries to their bodies and their brains while the NFL and its owners reap billions of dollars. What the lawsuit doesn't state is that 50% of football revenue goes to their majority black workforce who put their bodies on the line every Sunday, taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries to their bodies and their brains. They're not working in a slave atmosphere. There's no slave master saying, you need to go and throw that ball more, or otherwise we're going to beat you with 50 lashes. To equate the National Football League to a plantation is outrageous. And the connotation that these lawyers sit up in their luxury suites, eating, drinking, smoking cigars. Well, there's nothing wrong with smoking cigars and drinking fine libations. But it's almost like they're overseeing their their slaves. That's the connotation from it. It goes on to talk about the Rooney Rule, which was passed 20 years ago, or maybe thereabouts 20 years ago, that required teams to interview at least one minority candidate when hiring a coach. Last year, the NFL changed that requirement to two with at least one interview being in person. Before, it could be on the phone, it could be in Zoom, it could be via Skype. Now they said two interviews, one has to be in person. Now, the intent of the Rooney Rule initially was to help and assist black players who maybe weren't getting the opportunity. Maybe they weren't getting a chance to get in front of NFL owners. Now, I have nothing, I have no problem with somebody saying, look, we want to try to help you get a leg up. Now, one of the things the NFL could do, not just for black coaches, but for all coaches, is conduct seminars, classes on how to interview, how to be prepared. I mean, I can tell you that if a white coach, if I'm interviewing two coaches, one's white, one's black, and the white coach shows up unprepared, no notes, no agenda of what he'd like to relay to me as an owner, doesn't have really much to say, doesn't seem like he has a plan, I'm not going to hire that white coach. If a black coach comes in and says, here's my record, let me show you my plan, I have spent hours analyzing your current roster, I've spent hours analyzing your salary cap, I have looked at available coaches, here's, after watching tape of your games, here's where I think you need assistance. Here's where we're great. Here's where we're really deficient. Now, to me as an owner, I don't care if somebody's black, white, green, yellow, polka dot checkered. If they come prepared and I'm impressed and I get a good feeling about that person, that's who I'm going to hire. There's only one word that the NFL owners care about. It's not black and it's not white. It starts with a W and that word is wins. That is ultimately what coaches and player personnel and general managers and front office personnel, that's what they're judged on. Wins and losses, period. I mean, really, the NFL should be, and in many cases it's not, but should be the ultimate meritocracy. Where, hey, if you are a winning coach and you've got your offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, a special teams coach, but you show leadership and you've excelled at your profession, 
and you've got a track record of success and people around the league know you, that's what counts. I always say, the cream rises to the top. The cream rises to the top. You think that owners aren't always scouring who could be the next greatest head coach? You think they're just saying, only get me the white guys, don't get me the black guys. They get the people they think that can win for them. Win a Vince Lombardi trophy. Win a Super Bowl championship. The complaint further alleges that the Giants already made their choice. Bill's offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, days before Flores' interview, citing text messages that Belichick sent Flores, who he also worked with, Flores worked with, uh, worked underneath Belichick in New England. Further, the lawsuit accuses Dolphins owner Stephen Ross of offering direct payments for him to lose during the 2019 season. It says that Miami's owner Stephen Ross told Mr. Flores he would pay him 100000 for every loss. Now, we don't know if Stephen Ross was saying it in jest. For example, if he said to Brian Flores, hey, I hope we get the first draft pick, I'll tell you what, hey, you keep losing, I'll give you hundred grand for every loss. Now, if he sits down and says, Brian, I want you to lose purposely. Every loss, I'm going to add another 100000 to your contract. If it was done in jest, jokingly, to me, that's a non-issue. We don't know that. Now, if there are witnesses, then we'll see what happens. If there are other witnesses who testify under oath, yes, I heard the owner say that he would pay Flores $100,000 for every loss. And he was serious? Well, that's a different matter. But right now, all this is, is an allegation. Now, Flores said he refused to tank. Now, you can talk about tanking, you can wink-wink about tanking, but you can't come out and say, hey, we're going to tank. But Flores would have been far smarter, and that's why I say Flores isn't a very smart man, on several fronts, and I'll get to them over the next few minutes. But first front. If you know you've got a generational franchise quarterback, if you just lose one game, okay, you know you're going to be the head coach for a winning organization, who knows, for the next 10, 15, 20 years. You can ride that horse for as long as he's going to take you to the promised land. Now, if I see a Joe Burrow who by far and away was the number one quarterback coming out in the draft far ahead of, of, uh, of, of um, what was it, uh, Herbert and some of the other quarterbacks that came out that year, I'm absolutely, to a tongue of a low, I'm definitely going to say, okay, guys, I'm going to put in my second and third stringers here, and all I need is one or two plays to go wrong, and we'll be number one for the draft. He didn't. Stupid. Now, I understand as a coach, you're competitive, you want to win, but you sometimes have to see the bigger picture. At the end of the 2019 season, everybody in the league knew that Tom Brady was going to be done with the New England Patriots. That was his deal. He could walk away. Well, Steve Ross on his yacht in the offseason, after the 2019 season had ended, winter of 2020, Apparently invited, it says an unnamed quarterback, but from reporting, it seems to have been Tom Brady, who was interested in playing for the Dolphins, by the way, before he became the Tampa Bay Buccaneers starting quarterback. 
He invited Flores to his yacht for lunch and then mentioned that the quarterback, probably Brady, would be joining them at the marina. Flores is said to have left the yacht immediately because he didn't want to participate in NFL league tampering uh, uh, violations. The season was over. Brady's contract was done. The New England Patriots were going to say, hey, you're, you're, you're tampering. Everybody knew Brady was finished in New England. No surprise. And it goes on in the lawsuit saying, from that point forward, Flores was ostracized and ultimately fired. And he was defamed in the media and the league, labeled by the Dolphins as someone who was difficult to work with. And this is reflective of an all-too-familiar angry black man stigma that is often casted upon black men who are strong in their morals and convictions, while white men are coined as passionate for those very same attributes. Well, let me give you an example of Brian Flores as being difficult to work with. And in the lawsuit, it states that he was respected by coaches, by players, that just just hallowed reviews. Well, let me give you an example. First of all, there were two other Bill Belichick protégés, Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, and I'll put in a third, Josh McDaniels, who was just named the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. But going back about 10, 12 years ago, he was the head coach of the Broncos for just under two seasons. And there is one unilateral trait or or uniform trait between all the Bill Belichick protégés. Not all of them, but most of them. They all seem to have, number one, a lousy disposition. They all seem to be cranky and crabby. They don't want to deal with the media. They, they, They make enemies out of everybody in the organization because they see Bill Belichick operate in a certain way. They see the fact that Bill Belichick marches to his own drum. He puts everybody, makes everything difficult through coaches he he puts through the ringer and, and players. But that's Bill Belichick. He's been around for a long time. He's got a record of success. Matt Patricia didn't have any success in Detroit. He was run out of town because he was a prick. He lost games. He was a prick. The players hated him. The media hated him. The fans hated him, and clearly the organization hated him. And what many of these coaches that work under Belichick don't understand, you're an employee. You're an employee of the owner of the team. That's your boss. And if you're going to screw your boss, there's going to be a day of comeuppance. It happened for Matt Patricia. Joe Judge with the Giants, same thing. The guy was a prick to the media. He was a prick to coaches, fired coaches, got rid of coaches, couldn't get along with anybody. Josh McDaniels, during his Las Vegas Raiders press conference introduction, came out and said, I'm a far different person and more mature than I was 12 years ago. When he took the job in Denver, he said, he didn't understand the importance of people skills. He didn't understand to get everybody on board that you have to communicate. And what happened? He operated in his own realm until the owner, Pat Bolin, at the time said, enough's enough. We're not winning, and I've got complaints all over the place. It's attitude. You have to understand. I'll never forget Marv Levy when he was hired as the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Marv Levy's, the the wife of Ralph Wilson, pulled Marv aside and said, Marv, let me give you one bit of advice. Just talk to Ralph. 
just talk to him. Keep him commute. Keep him in the loop because the previous coaches prior to that, a number of previous coaches, never felt the need or the importance to communicate with the owner. And the reason Marv Levy had an outstanding relationship with Ralph Wilson, the former owner of the Buffalo Bills, who founded the Buffalo Bills in 1960, passed away, I don't know, about uh, maybe, what was it, six years ago, seven years ago? The reason they had a great relationship is because Marv spoke to him on a regular basis, multiple times during the week, before games, after games. And there were times when, when... Ralph Wilson, the owner, said, Marv, you know, I think you should be playing this person, and I don't know why you're not playing him. And Marv went back and forth with the owner, and at the end of the conversation, Marv would, or, correction, Ralph Wilson would always say, all right, I disagree with you, Marv, but you're the coach. you got to talk to your owner. You have to have personal interpersonal skills. And that's where a lot of these guys that come out of the Bill Belichick tree don't have it. And, and, and Brian... Flores is a perfect example. And let me give you an example about a coach, how he handled some of his assistant coaches. First up, when Flores got the job in 2019, one of his hires was an offensive line coach who had tremendous success in the National Football League, Pat Flaherty. Flaherty who at the time was, I think, 62 years of age, had completed an incredibly successful 12-year run with the New York football giants. Tom Coughlin's entire coaching career in New York, Pat Flaherty was there as the offensive line coach. His players raved about him, well-respected, well-liked, well-known in the National Football League. Prior to that, he served as the offensive line coach with the 49ers, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. But in 2019, Pat Flaherty was a free agent. He was looking for a gig. And that happens. You're an assistant coach, your head coach resigns, retires, gets blown out. All the assistants have to find new gigs. And being spending 12 years in one city, one team, that's incredible. So in 2019, a longtime coaching acquaintance, Freddie Kitchens, got the head coaching job with the Cleveland Browns and wanted to talk to Flaherty about joining his staff as the offensive line coach. Out of the blue, Flaherty received a call from Brian Flores of the Dolphins, just hired by the Dolphins, on the same day that Flaherty was in Buffalo to meet with the Bills head coach, Sean McDermott, and the offensive coordinator at the time, Brian Dable, about the open offensive line coaching position. Flaherty said he was very impressed with McDermott and with Dable. He said, I really felt comfortable up there. But Flores convinced him to come down and talk to him before he committed to anything. So Flaherty goes to Miami, makes his decision, likes Flores. They never had worked together. And so immediately Flaherty starts as the offensive line coach in 2019 with the Miami Dolphins. And he said, Brian kind of recruited me to be his offensive line coach. And he said he felt good about being hired by Flores because Jim Caldwell was also hired by Flores as the assistant head coach and quarterbacks coach. And for six seasons, Flaherty worked for Caldwell at Wake Forest. But in the spring of 2019, 
Caldwell took a leave of absence for medical reasons. So Flaherty goes to his first training camp with uh, uh, Flores and the Dolphins. And he said, Flores was a first-time head coach. The offensive line personnel was terrible. So every day, Flaherty said, he would sit in the office of general manager Chris Greer. They would go over the offensive line depth chart. They would try to find help from outside the organization. They would look for free agents, guys that were cut, guys that maybe were were unsigned free agents. They were scouring, looking to improve the line. The Dolphins had two full pad practices. and This is going into training camp followed by a day off for the players. So Flaherty had been with the Dolphins at training camp a grand total of two days with the day off, total of four days into training camp, so two practices, players get a day off, four days of training camp. On July 31st, 2019, at 8 in the morning, he gets a call from Flores. Not to come in and say, I want to talk to you. Flores tells him, and I quote, He called me in, said, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to have Googe coach the offensive line. I'm going to let you go. Flores was referring to Dave DeGuglielmo, who was hired by Flores as a consultant. Both had worked together with the Patriots. Now, again, I am trying to show you Brian Flores, who stated in his lawsuit that everybody loves, he's got great relationships with players, with coaches, And there's something also in the lawsuit where basically they want to have a strict protocol for when a coach should get fired. Not just arbitrary, hey, you're fired. There should be a checklist. This is what they're saying. But yet, Brian Flores, in 2019, specifically on July 31st, 2019, 8 a.m., calls up his offensive line coach at the time, Pat Flaherty, and says, you're done. And at the time, Flaherty said he was astonished he, because Flaherty or, or uh, Flores said, look, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to have Googe coach the offensive line. I'm going to let you go. Now, this is after two practices at training camp, four days total. He said, Flaherty said, Brian, you don't need to do this. What do you want me to do different? I've always been a head coach, first coordinator, second type of guy. Flores said, uh, it's nothing you're doing. It's in my gut. That was it. Flaherty was done. Paid him out. But what does it tell you that here's a well-regarded offensive line coach in the National Football League with, I think, 18, 20 years experience plus college experience, 12 years with the Giants, won a couple of Super Bowls there, All of a sudden, after two days of training camp, two practices, he's fired. Eight o'clock call from Flores. Now, did Flores make that decision arbitrarily? He said it was his gut. He had the right to do it. Was it stupid in retrospect? Sure. But Flores has a history of getting rid of assistant coaches. He got rid of his offensive coordinator after his first season. Okay, fine. He brings in Chan Gailey, well-respected offense, or, uh, uh, offensive coordinator, former head coach of the Cowboys, the Bills. One thing about Chan Gailey, maybe he's not head coaching material, but he's a damn good offensive mind. Did a great job with the Bills and Ryan Fitzpatrick with their offense. He did a good job with the Jets. He's done a good job everywhere he's been as an offensive coordinator. 
Flores lures Gailey out of retirement. Gailey did a decent job considering that Flores kept shuffling the quarterbacks. He started with Tua, then Fitzpatrick, then Tua, then Fitzpatrick, then Fitzpatrick, then Tua, back and forth. Again, here's a head coach that's playing musical chairs with his quarterbacks, again, probably from his gut. And he made those decisions probably arbitrarily, thinking, okay, well, it's our best chance of winning. So after the season, he gets rid of Chan Gailey. Brian Flores is his own worst enemy. You can file all the lawsuits you want, but it's very apparent that Brian Flores has a problem dealing not only with assistant coaches, and there's been some players he shipped out for whatever reason, but Brian Flores doesn't work well with others in the front office or ownership. And if you have a general manager that has been hired that was part of the interview process to bring you in, you should do all you can to work together harmoniously. Instead, Flores doesn't talk to the general manager, doesn't talk to the owner, doesn't, you know, he, he feels that he can go on his own island and not deal with people. Now, Flores was scheduled to interview with the Denver Broncos in 2019, early part of 2019. The Broncos, he says, now this is what they say in the lawsuit. They say that Broncos then general manager John Elway and president and CEO Joe Ellis and others showed up an hour late to the interview. They looked completely disheveled. It was obvious they had been drinking heavily the night before. Shortly thereafter, Vic Fangio, a white man, was hired to be the head coach of the Broncos. Not so fast, my friends, because the Broncos, by the way, Most, again, presenters and hosts failed to mention exactly what took place. They failed to mention that the Broncos have come out strongly denying it, and here is the exact statement the Broncos released yesterday, late yesterday afternoon. The allegations from Brian Flores directed toward the Denver Broncos in today's court filing are blatantly false. Our interview with Mr. Flores regarding our head coaching position began promptly at the scheduled time of 7.30 a.m. on January 5th, 2019 in a Providence, Rhode Island hotel. There were five Broncos executives present for the interview, which lasted approximately three and a half hours, the fully allotted time, and concluded shortly before 11 a.m. Pages of detailed notes, analysis, and evaluations from our interview demonstrate the depth of our conversation and sincere interest in Mr. Flores as a head coaching candidate. Our process was thorough and fair to determine the most qualified candidate for our head coaching position. The Broncos will vigorously defend the integrity and values of our organization and its employees from such baseless and disparaging claims. So Flores says they showed up an hour late to the interview on January 5th, 2019, and they were all disheveled and they all looked like they had been drinking the night before. Well, the Broncos have, it appears, meticulous records of the meeting. What time it started, where it took place, what they discussed. So clearly, oh, by the way, the interview, as it says in the statement, 
went the fully allotted time, three and a half hours. So it wasn't just, okay, Brian, tell me about yourself. Okay, what's your offense or defensive philosophy? You know, how do you think you can improve us? Okay, that's a half an hour. Thanks, goodbye. It's three and a half hours. So for Flores to accuse the Broncos, both Elway and the CEO, Joe Ellis, of showing up an hour late, well, first of all, the Broncos are refuting that. And they say they have the records to prove it. Now, to me, if Flores is lying about that, and again, if the Broncos are indeed subpoenaed or uh, have to appear at a deposition, you can be damn sure that not only will John Elway and Joe Ellis be deposed, but every person there or the Broncos during their own discovery in this lawsuit, if it even continues. I have a feeling this thing is probably going to end up tossed or you'll see some sort of bullshit settlement because I think Flores is making much of this up. Remember, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like an NFL football coach scorned. I would love to see the notes, the analysis, the evaluations from the interview. I think that would be very interesting to see. Clearly, the Broncos have it. And clearly, it displays the fact that they took the interview seriously and they came with, who knows if they had a stenographer, who knows if they were recording it, who knows. But clearly, this isn't just something, the way they describe it, it's not just somebody took you know three sentences on a, on a legal pad. They clearly have extensive notes of the conversation. When the meeting started, when the meeting ended. And it's very important. Whenever I have a meeting, I always put the date, the time, where it took place, what time it started, what time it ended. Not just some perfunctory two lines about the meeting. Now, the plaintiffs, again, this is a class action suit. And the attorneys and Flores say there's other coaches that certainly can get involved. For example, former Indianapolis Colts, Detroit Lions coach Jim Caldwell, former Arizona Cardinals coach Steve Wilkes, who, by the way, was fired after one season. I think they won, won one game, and then, boom, he was out. Recently fired Houston Texans coach David Culley and several other coaches. But they want to change the NFL's hiring practices and monetary damages. They want to ensure that diversity of ownership by creating and funding a committee dedicating, dedicated to sourcing black investors to take majority ownership stakes in the NFL, in NFL teams. Who's stopping anybody? If Oprah Winfrey or Michael Jordan wants to get a group, I believe the NFL says one owner must come up with 35% of the total purchase price and become the managing partner. So, for example, if a franchise were to go for a billion dollars, Somebody would have to come up with 350 mil to become the managing partner. And then all the other partners are silent partners. They don't get any control or any say. Nobody's stopping any wealthy black individual from doing that. There are black owners in the NBA. What's to stop Michael Jordan or an Oprah Winfrey or anybody that's wealthy from purchasing an NFL franchise? If you're willing to pony up the money, They'll get approved if they have the financial wherewithal. Then it says, ensure diversity of decision-making by permitting select black players and coaches to participate in the interviewing process. I'm sorry. If I'm the owner of the team, I may want to get the counsel 
and the advice of other coaches in my organization, other personnel people, maybe some players, but I'm the one that's going to make the decision. I don't need other people, whether they're white or black, to tell me who my final head coach selection should be. Then they want to require NFL teams to reduce to writing the rationale for hiring and termination decisions, including a full exam of the basis for any subjective influences. For example, trust, personality, interview performance. They want to require teams to consider side-by-side comparisons of objective criteria such as past performance, experience, and objective qualifications. Well, I wonder, did Brian Flores when he made his termination decision for multiple assistant coaches, including Pat Flaherty, a well-regarded offensive line coach after two practices at preseason training camp, did he uh, reduce to writing his rationale? Was it trust, personality, interview performance for any of those subjective influences? No. He said, I got a gut feeling. You're done. That was it. Flores is a crybaby. Now, let me play for you. He was on CBS this morning, or what they call now CBS Mornings. And uh, Gail King and Tony, I think his name is Catali or Cataluia. Well, I don't know, whoever the hell's. Nate Burleson. So Flores' attorneys, two attorneys, who uh, frankly kind of look like schmucks, and Flores, who quite honestly didn't seem like he was prepared to answer. It almost seems like he was just a lackey following along with what the attorneys were telling him to do. So first up, here is audio cut number one where Flores talks about the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule is in- intended to uh, you know, give minorities an opportunity to sit down in front of uh, ownership, but I think what it's turned into is um, an instance where guys are just checking the box. He's right. The Rooney Rule has outlived its usefulness. No ifs, ands, or buts. I made a joke earlier, actually starting last year. I was telling people, people were saying, oh, so-and-so's interviewing and so-and-so. And my, my, my joke was, well, he's the black du jour, meaning that he's this year's Rooney Rule black candidate to be passed around the various owners to make it look like you know, even though they may have had people they were interested in, by Rooney Rule, you had to interview not only once, but now twice. So there's always that same list. This year there was there was the same list of three or four black coaches who were being interviewed. Now my feeling is this. The cream rises to the top. Always has, always will. If you're a good coach, I don't care if you're black or white, people will discover you. People will find you. Now, there is no question that there may be some nepotism. You look at like a Mike Shanahan. His kid was uh, worked under Shanahan, I think his offensive quality control, and certainly had a leg up to get into the league. But Shanahan made a name for himself, including blowing the Super Bowl, but that's another story. There's no question, but that happens in life. That happens everywhere. People know somebody. People are related to somebody. People went to college with somebody. But that doesn't mean 
that you cannot succeed even if you don't know anybody. If you work your ass off, and you look at Brian Dable, perfect example. Brian Dable was raised, the new head coach of the Giants, former offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, he was raised by his grandparents because uh, he was born in Canada, father was never in his life, and so moved to West Seneca, New York, suburb of Buffalo, not far from Highmark Stadium where the Bills play, grew up as a big Bills fan. He didn't come for much, but his grandparents got him into a private Catholic school. And he excelled, got a scholarship at the University of Rochester to play football. And then from there, he ended up getting into coaching, making no money. First of all, working for Michigan State. Somehow got a job as, I think, a graduate uh, assistant at Michigan State under Nick Saban. And then he ends up working for Bill Belichick with the Patriots. Started very low, spent, I think, 10, 12 years with the Patriots, working his way up, learning under Belichick. Interesting story, he made $15,000 his first year. He couldn't even afford a car. Bill Belichick had to loan Brian Dable a car for six months so Dable could get around. He paid his dues. There are plenty of coaches that pay their dues. There are plenty of coaches that learn along the way. Look, Brian Flores, by all accounts, paid his dues. He started with the Patriots and the personnel front office, and then moved to being a, I think, a special assistant, and then moved his way up, I think, linebackers coach, and clearly interviewed by several teams, and Steve Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, certainly didn't look at his skin color, the fact that his parents are Honduran immigrants, and said, well, I'm not going to hire you because your parents are from Honduras, you're immigrants, and you're black. Sorry, the opposite. He was hired, and he'd probably still be the coach if number one, He would get along with others, communicate with his general manager and his owner, and not be such a prick. That's just fact. Now, the Rooney Rule is obsolete. How many of you, ask yourself this, how many of you would want to take an interview knowing that it's for the sole reason, because of your religion, your race, your skin color? To me, that's degrading. If somebody said, Dave, I want to interview you because of whatever, your religion, your this, your that, your background, I'd say, no, interview me because I'm competent and qualified for the job. And by the way, every one of us has a story. Somewhere along the line, we work for somebody who was a prick. We work for somebody who may have slandered us somehow, either by our religion, by race. There are plenty of stories. It's happened to me. And as my father, may rest in peace, always said, cream always rises to the top. Be bigger. The best revenge, as Frank Sinatra would say, is massive success. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't let somebody get in the way. It's a minor speed bump. And I can tell you, I had blatantly somebody that I worked for right out of college, where I was doing a great job after about uh, two years, said, well, your type when talking about something, and I knew what he was talking about, he's talking about my religion. He said, well, your type does this or that. And I said, what do you mean, my type? And he boxed himself into a corner. Now, could I have sued him for megabucks? you damn right, because I had witnesses. Instead, I used that to my advantage. And I can tell you that even to this day, which is, th- what, probably 35 years, a- 33 years after that happened, I can tell you, 
that it always, I used that as motivation. I used it at the time as fuel for motivation. And I had colleagues, we went out to lunch after it was said, that said, I, I can't believe what he just said. I, I just can't believe it. So I said, listen, I'm not long for this particular gig or this particular company, but I can tell you one thing, I will have the last laugh. And I have. And I did. There are always going to be people in the way that for whatever reason are going to be a hindrance. Maybe they don't like your skin color. Maybe they don't like your religion. Maybe they don't like your nationality. That's the reality. You climb over it. Use that as fuel for motivation. So the Rooney Rule today has outlived its usefulness. It, to me, is frankly insulting to say, okay, we've got a guy that we know. For example, the Buffalo Bills wanted to promote Ken Dorsey, who was the quarterback's coach the last four years. They knew Ken Dorsey. The players loved him. White, black, they all loved him. The Bills wanted to promote him, but they couldn't. They had to interview, per the Rooney Rule, a minority candidate. And I think they did two minority interviews. To me, that's a waste of time. You know who you want. If there's somebody within your organization, and by the way, how many blacks and minority coaches get promoted within the organization because of the fact they've done a great job? So to me, if you have proved yourself within an organization, whether you're white or black, and you want your boss wants to promote you, that should be it, pure and simple. So the Rooney rule to me is insulting. I wouldn't want to be brought in for an interview because of my skin color, religion, or any other factor. I want to be brought in because I'm competent. That's it. So the Rooney rule, I agree with Brian Flores. It is owners checking the box. Eliminate it. It's more of a detriment than it is a help. Now, Flores talks about his gift as a coach. Look, I love coaching. You know, I'm gifted to coach. I know that. Um, and the relationships I've built with players, coaches, support staff, uh, I'm gifted to coach, and I love coaching, and I want to coach. Um, and I've heard this, from reliable sources you're a very good coach. Let <laughs> the no record doubt about show. It. Always room for improvement. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I like to think that as well. Okay, Gail King, you've heard through reliable sources you're a gifted coach. Who? Please. And by the way, he's such a gifted coach that he won a whopping 49% of his games. So he's basically, he's got a losing record. So if he's so gifted, and by the way, in his first season, he didn't want to tank. His record would probably be much greater had he actually done the smart thing and maybe for a couple of plays, the last game of the season, knowing that if they lost, they would get the first draft choice and get Joe Burrow, he would have been smart to put in the third stringers. Not bright. And then he talks about relationships with players, coaches. I just went on and told you about his relationship with coaches. How basically well-regarded coaches, including their offensive line coach, Pat Flaherty, after two practices, he fired him. Just said his gut told him that. Got, he's fired umpteen other assistant coaches. Now, I understand maybe one, two, three in three years, but when you're talking about like six, eight coaches – Somewhere along the line, that's either an indictment on you because you hired bad coaches or an indictment on you because you can't get along with anybody. So one way or the other, to say that he's got relationships with coaches and he's gifted as a coach, hey, Flores, you won a whopping 49%. You're not a winning coach. 
not such a great gift. Now, the attorney had to interject, of course, to talk about black owners. I mean, can I just say, in 2022, the fact that we don't have one black owner, we only have one black head coach. That's actually what I want to talk you know, about. He, I mean, you know, really, Brian needs to be applauded for stepping forward to be the first person to really contest it. It's been talked about. Well, you've you know, heard but, but now he has stepped forward to challenge yeah. it. Okay. First of all, nobody is preventing any black person from buying an NFL franchise. Nobody. If you have the money, and by the way, if you do have the money, the NFL will allow you. If you tell the NFL, look, I'm interested in buying a franchise or becoming a minority partner, or when I say minority, not a black partner, meaning you have less than the majority ownership of a team, you can submit an application to the NFL. They will they will absolutely look at that. There are plenty of people that have done that, that have applied to say, look, I'm interested in acquiring a team. And I want to have my, you know, I want to be vetted. They'll do that. If you've got the money and you pass the background check, you don't, you're not a criminal, you're not a felon, you're, you know, you're not, uh, you know, a, a member of some Mexican cartel, congratulations, you can buy yourself an NFL franchise. Now, the going rate for NFL franchises, the Denver Broncos, they're talking in the 3 to $4 billion area. So let's just say it's $3 billion. The NFL says you can be the managing partner as long as you own 35%. The NFL also allows you to lever or finance up to 50% of the franchise. Great. So if it's $3 billion, you can get a bank loan for $1.5 billion, but the NFL is still going to come to you and say, okay, you still have to put up 35%. Of the, or you have to own 35% of the remaining shares. So if it's $450 million of a billion five, or whatever, $500 million, or it's 35% of the total price of $3 billion, if you have the money, whether you're black, Asian, white, black, yellow, green, they don't care. It's all about the money. Show me the money. That's what the NFL is going to tell you. Hey, you want to buy a franchise? Show me the money. And if you show them the money and you pass the background check, mazel tov, congratulations. You, too, can be an NFL owner. Nobody's stopping wealthy black people or other minorities from buying a football team. Shad Khan, from Pakistan originally. Know him. Great guy. Uh, sat in his luxury suite at the, uh, the Jaguars and the Bills a couple of years ago. Very successful guy. He invented the Unibumper that you see on many cars. First started with Toyota, and then almost every car has that Unibumper. Before, they used to be multiple pieces. Now it's one piece. He invented that. An engineer worked for a, it's called Flexengate, company in, uh, I think in Missouri or Illinois, southern Illinois. Worked at the company, ended up buying the company. He's now a multi-billionaire. He went in, bought the Jaguars. He put up the money. He passed the background check. Great. If you have that kind of money, you too can own an NFL franchise. So this nonsense that there's no black owners and only one black coach, it goes in waves. There have been black coaches. Why do black coaches get fired? The same reason white coaches get fired. They didn't win enough. That's simple. We can say, oh, that... that 
to say that if somebody says, well, look, only black coaches get fired for losing, that's bullshit. We all know that. Look at how many white coaches were canned at the end of this season. Tons. What was there, seven, eight, whatever the case is. Now, one of the CBS morning crew asked Flores why he would include a statement saying that the NFL is managed like a plantation. Take a listen to the answer. When you talk about the owners, you know, you got 31 white billionaires and then the Packers have a special situation. 70% about of the players are, are black. Uh, it, it, there's a power dynamic that's visible there. Yeah. In the lawsuit, there's this explosive line that the NFL is managed much like a plantation. That's a, a direct quote. Why did you decide to settle on that metaphor? Uh, uh, he went on for about 12, 13 seconds, couldn't answer. And when, when he, by the way, when he did answer it, he didn't answer anything to do with why they included that that line as uh, the NFL owners, it's, it's, they operate the league like, an, like a, 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 a black, or like a plantation. Couldn't answer the question because they don't operate it like a plantation. Nobody's forced in the NFL. Nobody's forced to be a head a coach or an assistant coach. Nobody's forced to be in the front office. No player is forced to play. Players want to play because big money. Now, I know that some people say, hey, listen, you know, uh, the average expectancy of a running back in the NFL is five seasons, and they should make as much as they can. Fine, I don't have a problem with that. But you have to remember, the average salary in the United States is what? Maybe 40 grand, 45 grand, maybe less. I don't know. But it's definitely not more than 50. So if you play for five seasons and you make, let's say, an average of five, 600,000 a year, that's three million bucks. That's pre tax, of course. If you were to make the average salary in the United States, you'd have to work, what, 35 years? No, more than that. Maybe 60 years to get that. 50 years. Whatever it is. Just because you're a pro athlete and you work for five, six years or you play in the league doesn't mean that when you're done, you can't work. Unless, of course, you know, you're making the, the quarterback bucks, the 40, 50 million bucks a year. That's different. But nobody is forced to play. This lawsuit is garbage. Brian Flores was interviewing with both the New Orleans Saints and the Houston Texans actively before he filed the lawsuit yesterday. He told, and by the way, it looked as though both teams had a big interest in him, especially the Saints. He told both teams he was filing the lawsuit before he filed it, as if that's, you know, some great achievement. What do you think the Saints and the Texans are going to do? You think you want to bring an employee that, number one, has all sorts of interpersonal problems and an ability to deal with other members of your organization who goes through assistant coaches like they're candy, who files a lawsuit saying all of the problems are because he's black and he's being disadvantaged. Would you hire somebody like that? I don't think so. Somebody's got an active lawsuit, forget about it. Again, you didn't hear this analysis anywhere else because the what I call them the press release media they look at a press release, and that's what they report as gospel. They never read the lawsuit. They never do an in-depth analysis. 
That's why you come to me to listen to both Bold Alpha and The Cigar Dave Show, because you know we're going to tell it to you straight. We don't just show up and say, hey, let's talk for the next half hour, 45 minutes, two hours. We actually do research, because remember, as alphas, we're educated, we're worldly, we're unafraid to express our opinion, we don't apologize for our opinion, and 99% of the time we're right because we do our background. We go and do our research. I just gave you the research on Brian Flores. So if somebody says, oh, the Broncos, oh, they came in disheveled. Well, you now know what the Broncos' response was. I didn't hear that very much yesterday or even this morning as I was getting ready to come into Command Center Alpha, listening to not only news talk stations but sports stations as well. Whoopi Goldberg got a copy of the home game yesterday. Let's talk about Whoopi. On the view, or I call it the pew, because it stinks. The view, to me, is unwatchable. They go after one group, ultra-liberals. The women, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar, all the people that are on there, some of them I don't even know, they all live in their little New York City bubble. They know nothing about flyover America. They don't know anything about blue-collar work. They don't know anything about bringing your lunch pail to work. Their idea of, a, of a, an inexpensive lunch is uh, a lunch where you don't have any cocktails and it's only 60, 70 bucks a person. But yet they look down on everyone else. I always said if you really want to do a national talk show to women or even to men anywhere, don't do it from New York. Don't do it from Washington. Do it from places like here in Tampa. Do it from Chicago. Do it from Kansas City. Do it from Buffalo. Do it from, from Omaha. Do it from cities where people actually don't live in a bubble, where you hear the other side. So Whoopi Goldberg, when, as part of a discussion about the book Mouse, M-A-U-S, not M-O-U-S-E. For those of you that don't know about the book Mouse, big controversy. Because a Tennessee school board in McMinn County, Tennessee, which is located between Knoxville and Chattanooga, voted unanimously, the 10-member school board, to ban Mouse, M-A-U-S, a graphic novel about the Holocaust from its 8th grade curriculum. The move was made after they debated the book's content, its age appropriateness, and the best way to teach kids about the Nazis' persecution of European Jews during World War II. Now, some of the content, this book was, was written by American cartoonist Art Spiegelman, who published the first and second installments of Mouse, which is the German word for mouse, in 1986 and 1991, respectfully. His parents were survivors. Polish-Jewish parents survived imprisonment at the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration and extermination camp. So what he did was, what uh, Spiegelman did, he got true accounts, first-hand accounts from his parents about what took place. And he blends art, autobiography, history, to relate the experiences of his Holocaust survivor parents. And the cartoonist depicts different groups is anthropomorphized 
animals. So, for example, Jews shown as mice, Germans as cats, Poles as pigs, so on. He won a special citation Pulitzer Prize in 1992. McKinn County School Board deemed mouse inappropriate for 13-year-olds based in part of its inclusion of swear words and drawings of nude figures. Now, these weren't hot women that were nude figures. These were people that were emaciated, that were starved, that were tortured, that were thrown into ovens and gas chambers. One board member of the McMinn County, Tennessee School Board said, and I quote, he, said, he, he didn't even see the book or read the book, admitting he only read reviews. Now, how do you make a judgment on whether or not to allow or ban a book if you haven't even seen the book, haven't read the book? Another board member said, we don't need to enable or somewhat promote this stuff. It shows people hanging. It shows them killing kids. Why does the educational system promote this kind of stuff? It's not wise or healthy. You know it's not wise or... By the way, that board member's name, Tony Elman, A-L-L-M-A-N. You know it's not wise is failing to show history accurately, to depict history as it happened, to show that there were kids that were starved to death, that were murdered, that worked in concentration camps, that were thrown into gas chambers. Failure, what, what's the old uh, the expression? Uh, somewhere along the lines of, uh, if you don't, if you don't, uh, uh, what is it, the history where if you don't see history, if you don't teach history, you're condemned to relive it. And that's true. Remember, many of the survivors of the, of the Holocaust, the concentration camps, they're dying. They're dying away every day like our World War II veterans. Let me give you a personal aside. My kindergarten teacher survived the Holocaust, survived the concentration camp. On her arm, there were tattooed numbers. That's the number she was assigned when she got, and I don't remember what camp she was in. But that was the number assigned. She didn't have it lasered off. At the time, they didn't have lasers. It was right on her arm. And I remember wondering, and everybody wondering, what is that? Why does she have that number? Well, we learned very quickly. I learned in kindergarten what that meant. And it stuck with me until today. There is no age too young to teach about the atrocities of the Holocaust. The Holocaust was very simple. It was incredible evil by a group of Germans. In fact, most all Germans are guilty because many of them knew what was going on or chose to close their eyes to what was going on. That's why President Eisenhower forced every single person, German, who lived near the concentration camps to go in and see for themselves what took place. Many of them knew what was going on but decided to, to, to ignore it. He made them see it. That's why he had photographers photograph everything, the bad, the inhumane, the deplorable, the cruelty, so that future generations would never forget. It's very simple. The Nazis felt they were the Aryan race, and they wanted to exterminate a race. The Jews, six million murdered because of the final solution for a pure race. That's what 
Adolf Hitler and all the Nazis and many Germans who are complicit or look the other way, they are responsible. I remember watching Schindler's List on NBC when it came out. This has got to be 20 years ago. It was on a Sunday night. And I remember watching it. And it was presented by limited interruption, uh, presented by Ford with very limited interruption. And all they did for the intermission, I think they had two intermissions, all there was was a countdown clock. That was it. I think like a one-minute countdown clock. They didn't run commercials. Not appropriate for Ford or anybody to run commercials. So what they said was, it's being presented by Ford in limited commercial interruption, and all they had was a countdown clock during either the one or the two intermissions. Highly rated. It showed everything. It was uncut. They did not sanitize it for television. They showed the Holocaust as it happened. The atrocities. They didn't try to cover it up or whitewash it. The next day, at the time, Congressman Tom Coburn of Oklahoma later became the senator from Oklahoma, got on the floor of the House chamber and spoke out against NBC for showing Schindler's List, for exposing American people to the nudity, the language, the graphic detail, went on and on, how it's inappropriate. Needless to say, he was excoriated by every member of the House, Republican, Democrat, Independent, by the Senate, everybody came out against what he had to say. And they were right. It was incredibly asinine. He then apologized and walked it back. But how stupid can one be? And Coburn wasn't stupid. He's a medical doc- was a medical doctor. Passed away a number of years ago. He was a medical doctor, smart guy. But to... Go on the house chamber on the floor and speak against NBC for this. They weren't showing a porn movie. They weren't showing Debbie Does Dallas. They were showing a true adaptation of a story that occurred. One man who saved the lives of many Jews, many other people as well. Gypsies were killed, other people as well. This wasn't showing hot women in bikinis or or, or taking them off. This wasn't, you know, guys around a bar swearing and and, 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 uh, uh, being, you know, using salty language. This was reality. This is what took place from 1939 to 1945 by a very sinister, very evil, very depraved group of people, group of, I wouldn't even say animals, because that would be an insult to animals. There is no reason, no way, should any libraries or any school boards be banning books about history, about the Holocaust. Kids that are 12 should be exposed to it. They should see it. I can tell you that I know there are many cities where Holocaust survivors would routinely go out to schools and speak to students, grade school students, high school students, about what took place. 
And, and many of the students would come away saying, that couldn't have happened. It's true. When I first saw Schindler's List in the theater, I will never forget this. I'm sitting there with my date at the time. We watched the movie. And it's not the kind of movie you go out on a happy date. We wanted to see it. We went during the week. Again, it's not the kind of movie, hey, let's go see this movie and we'll have, we'll, 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 this will be a, we'll, a comedy. No. We went because we wanted to see, the, the, it was acclaimed, we wanted to see the history. My grandmother had umpteen relatives and sisters that were murdered in the Holocaust at the camps. So this hits very close to me, hits close to home. And I remember seeing it, and I can tell you there was not a word during the movie Afterwards, when the movie was done and everybody stayed for the credits, not a word. I have never been to a movie where there was stone-cold silence the entire movie and after the movie. People said nothing because it was so emotional, because it was so disturbing. But on the way out, as I'm walking down the hallway, lady behind me is talking to a couple other friends of hers. She wasn't very old. She was probably at the time in her, in her 40s. So clearly aware of history. She said to her friends, was that a true story? I, I was shocked. I looked at I turned right back and I said, that was most assuredly a true story. Are you familiar with the Holocaust? She goes, well, not really. I said, then you ought to do some research. I said, six million Jews Four or five million other people were killed. Gypsies and other uh, ethnicities were, dis- were, were, were gassed to death. Go get a book. I mean, I was just flabbergasted. And her friends were beyond mortified. Whoopi Goldberg leads a discussion on The View Monday talking about this book being banned. This is what she said about the Holocaust. The Holocaust isn't about race. No. No. It's well, not about maybe race. Maybe it's, 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 no, it's, it's, it's about a different it's, race. But it's, it's not about race. It's not about well, race. What is it about? Because you, it's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. But it's about white supremacy. It's well, about but going it's not, after it's not about and, ideal and race. It's it's but these are two Romans. white groups of people. Well, that how do we have to black people see too. them as white? And they but you're, you're missing the point. You're missing yeah. the point. Yeah. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. Bullshit. Whoopi Goldberg is either st- was stone at the time or incredibly stupid, or incredibly misinformed. She knows better. To say the Holocaust is not about race, what the hell was it about? You had the supposed Aryan race that was going to purify Germany and Europe and the world. And their first step in the final solution, murder, gas every Jew in Germany, Poland, and every other occupied territory, in their quest for world domination. Not about race. Don't give me this white-on-white bullshit. This isn't like saying, oh, this is black-on-black crime or white-on-white. No. The Nazis had one mission, create the Aryan race and exterminate Jews and those they felt were not pure. 
her cast members, I think, were beyond shocked at what she had to say. And I think some of them almost, now Joy Behar, I think, disagreed, but Anna Navarro, who's a moron from Florida, total ditz, almost tried to side with Whoopi. Now, don't give me this, it's just about evil. It's not about, I mean, this is the equivalent of saying, saying that the Holocaust was not about race is the equivalent of saying that slavery was not about race. This would be saying, the equivalent of saying, slavery is not about race, it's about business. It's about economics. Bullshit. Slavery was about race. Everybody knows it. And everybody knows the Holocaust was about the Aryans, the Nazis who thought they could be the Aryan perfect race, exterminating, killing, gassing Jews and others that they felt weren't part of that pure Aryan race. And then she goes on that night with Late Night with Stephen Colbert. It's not Colbert, Stephen Colbert. It's Colbert. He's full of baloney. Wants to think he's French. Goes on the Late Show, and she digs a hole even further. Instead of saying, you know what, I was wrong. I was, I, it, it was about race. It was, she digs it even further, and the audience is saying nothing. I mean, Colbert is sitting there looking didn't even say a word trying to help her out but she's digging and the audience didn't say a word because the audience was mortified executives at Disney ABC were mortified word got out that producers and cast members or, or other hosts on the show were were upset were 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 angered and that many directors on the Disney board of directors were angry and were mortified at what she had to say. I'm sorry. Everyone with one sliver of a brain cell knows what the Holocaust was about. It was about the extermination, murdering of Jews systematically. Not haphazardly, systematically. The Nazis were evil bastards. There is a reason the state of Israel to this day will go anywhere around the world at any time if they believe there is a living Nazi still around. They'll find them, they'll hunt them down, they will bring them to justice. And they've done it many times in the past. They will continue to do it. And they don't care how old a Nazi is. Somebody said, oh, but the guy's now 90. I don't care how old a Nazi is. You did that, you pay the price. Evil must be eliminated. This morning on, it shouldn't be mornings with, uh, 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 what is it, uh, morning Joe. It should be morning Mika, or I call her morning Zika. Because Joe Scarborough's got no balls the wife, Mika Brzezinski, wears the balls and the pants in the family. He just sits there, and she basically runs the show. He's a beta wussified cuck, any way you look at it. Here's what Mika had to say this morning 
about Whoopi. And by the way, Whoopi suspended for two weeks. Two weeks suspension. I have a feeling there's going to be more to come on that. But this is what Mika Brzezinski said on Morning Schmo today. This is something that is just going to, like, start getting ridiculous. I mean, if Whoopi Goldberg is canceled, that would be, that would be the, I mean, that would be the end of this all. This cancel culture is getting so out of hand. Really? You think so, Mika? It's getting out of hand? No, it is, it is out of hand. Not getting there. It is out of hand. But isn't it interesting when a Democrat, and a liberal gets called on the carpet and people are saying she needs to go, she should be fired, what happens? All her fellow libs and dems say, oh, cancel culture's gone way, way overboard now. These are the same people that if a Republican, a conservative, a Trump supporter says something that they disagree with, they want that person canceled, they want that person to lose their livelihood, get fired, lose their job, lose their family, never work again. They want to destroy those people. Now, I agree. I don't believe in cancel culture. Whoopi said it, live with it. I don't believe in cancel culture. But it goes both ways. It doesn't go... Let's not cancel people when they say something, as long as they're a Democrat or a liberal. It goes both ways. But that's not how it's going to go. While the Dems and the Libs and Mika or Zika Brzezinski wails about how unfair this is and cancel culture's got it, it's going over the top. Cancel culture has been over the top and has been outrageous for the last four or five years. Yet they never complain unless it affects a fellow Dem or a fellow Lib. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Now, I know that Sean Hannity and many people, I know that Greg, um, what's his name on Newsmax, um, whose name escapes me. Geez, I I catch his show all the time at 7 o'clock. He's on, and they're all saying, a number of other people on Fox and other networks saying, oh, I don't believe in cancel culture, we shouldn't cancel, because they think that by saying we don't want to be canceled, that someday they won't be canceled. Now, I've always said, hey, I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe in boycotts. Let people say what they want to say. Better that I know what Whoopi Goldberg really thinks than to hide. The worst thing that can happen is you have an enemy or somebody that doesn't like you staring you and talking to you and saying everything is great. When behind their backs, your back, they're stabbing you right in the back. To me, I'd rather know who my enemies are. I've always believed that. The people that despise I despise the most are those people that will look at you and say, oh, you're great, you're, you're wonderful, and then as soon as you walk out that room, they're taking that giant, that giant machete and they are sticking it right in your back and they are screwing you at every turn. I despise that. They're weasels, they're weenies. But cancel culture, as far as I'm concerned, I disagree with it. However, do you think for a moment that the Democrats or the liberals, if you go ahead and you say something they disagree with or somewhat controversial and you apologize, do you think they're going to accept it? If you're Republican or conservative, we all know the answer to that. Big no, nada, yet, not happening. So by one token, I say, 
Look, I don't believe in cancel culture for anybody, but I know damn well the only way cancel culture will end is when we go after those Dems and Libs in the same vicious manner in which they go after those of us who espouse conservative, Republican, MAGA, pro-Trump, America first values and ideas. When all of a sudden it hits them, then they'll wake up. Then they'll cry foul. So I say, screw the fact that don't call for Whoopi Goldberg to get canceled. I say, cancel her. Finish her. Make her an example for all the Dems and Libs that if you keep coming after Republicans and conservatives, we're going to turn the table around and come after you 10 times harder. You watch how quick all of a sudden the cancel culture bullshit would end. This morning on The View, they didn't have much to say about Whoopi Goldberg's two-week suspension. This is how they started the show this morning. Good morning and welcome to The View. Um, You all saw the news. Whoopi will be back here in two weeks. Okay. Tara Setmayer has returned to guest co-host, so let's get some hot topics, ladies, shall we? That's it. Okay, you know what happened. Let's move on. And by the way, here's a last-minute update here as I record this bold alpha podcast. Whoopi Goldberg livid over her two-week suspension, and she is threatening to quit The View. Now, do you think The View, that Whoopi Goldberg is indispensable? Do you think The View can't go on without Whoopi Goldberg? Oh, by the way, Whoopi Goldberg, I frankly, I'm offended that she is using Jewish culture appropriation with her fake last name. She is taking a Jewish name, Goldberg, and culturally appropriating it. I think that's another reason she should be fired. I am outraged. I'm outraged that she is taking a Jewish last name. and I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm almost in tears. No, I'm not. Just, Just bullshitting. But... What do we hear? Oh, you're having Chinese food? Oh, you're culturally appropriating uh, uh, the Chinese people. Oh, you're having, you're having Italian? You're culturally appropriating Italian? It's so stupid. But this is the same nonsense. I say, hey, Whoopi Goldberg should also be fired because she's culturally appropriating a Jewish last name and she's not Jewish. Not even close. So Whoopi Goldberg threatening to quit? If I'm Disney ABC, I don't say, hey, listen, we don't want you to quit. Our answer would be, we accept your resignation. Bye-bye. You're done. That's it. Or pay her out through the rest of the year. I don't know if they're on year-to-year contracts or what the deal is, but say, great, we'll pay you out, but you can't work anywhere else. You're done. She's livid over a two-week suspension. Are you kidding me? If she was a Republican or conservative or Megan McCain and said that, she would have been fired. The only reason she's not fired is because she's a Democrat, she's liberal, and she's black. She's a minority. That's fact. She can be livid as much as she wants. As far as I'm concerned, cancel her, finish her, sayonara, bye-bye. Lastly, speaking of finished and bye-bye, CNN President Jeff Zucker, Zuck you, resigns. It appears that during the Chris Cuomo, the Frito investigation about Cuomo harassing people and all sorts of other allegations that went on. It seems that Jeff Zucker, the longtime CNN president who single-handedly has destroyed CNN, again, talking about moving CNN from Atlanta 
to New York. When they did that, the network went to shit. They had great programming on CNN, good ratings. They were legit. They weren't ultra-left. They weren't ultra-right. Down the middle, great reporting. You know, they had Larry King Lives. They had Moneyline with Lou Dobbs. It was a great network to watch. But when they moved to from Atlanta to New York, what happens? The ultra-liberal influence, the Upper East Side influence, the Hamptons influence, the, the, the Westchester influence... It all, that little New York bubble where all they think of is themselves. There's no rest of the world. It's New York and then a little sliver of the rest of the country. That's when CNN went to shit. Well, he resigned, or maybe he was fired. Turns out he was banging his right-hand woman, the chief marketing officer, executive VP of CNN, Allison Golist. And wait, but wait, as Ron Popeil would say, there's more. She is formerly the comms director, the communications director for Kim Jung Cuomo. So, the former comms director gets hired by Zucker at CNN, starts banging her, and he didn't disclose that per company regulations whether that was Time Warner or AT&T at the time, whatever it is, he did not report that per regulations. If he said, I am banging Allison Golist, who reports to me, he would have to disclose that. He didn't. Why? Who knows? And who cares? The good news is, he's gone. Zuck you, Zucker. You're out. It is amazing to me. All these holier-than-thou libs, and holier-than-thou Dems talking about how we have to restore goodness into the White House, that President Trump is just evil, and the tweets, we need to restore decency into the White House. We need to restore respect. And he leads a network that single-handedly, for over four and a half years, went after President Trump with bullshit lies about Russian collusion, and a Russian dossier that has been proven to be total nonsense. They reported it as fact. They went after him at every turn, praising Biden. What a wonderful, upstanding individual. And turns out that Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, all along is a slimeball. I have no problem with him banging whoever he wants. He's divorced. Who cares? But when he blatantly breaks the rules... That as the president, he should be setting the example. Instead, he didn't. He was flaunting the rules, banging his right-hand woman, the chief marketing officer and executive vice president of CNN, Allison Golist. Nothing to look at, by the way. But then again, neither is Zuck, Zucker. But I find it amazing. Banging his right-hand woman while at the same time talking about how Trump is evil and has no morals and the insurrection and our democracy is failing. All these people who live in glass houses end up getting stones thrown and the house comes crumbling down. How do you like that? Frito, Chris Cuomo, responsible for CNN President Jeff Zucker getting outed and getting fired. Zuck you. Cigar Dave, your global five-star general alpha male-in-chief. Don't forget... Make sure if you uh, follow, make sure to follow us on social media, Twitter at Cigar Dave Show, Getter at Cigar Dave, Facebook Cigar Dave. Make sure if you would like to send us an email, 
do so. CigarDave at CigarDave.com. Give us a five-star review. Make sure you subscribe to Bold Alpha and our brother Cigar Dave Show podcast that comes out Saturdays. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just do a search, Cigar Dave, and subscribe. Give us a five-star review. You're not going to hear this analysis anywhere else. Why? Because as alpha males, you appreciate the fact that we do our research. We're intelligent. We use common sense. We don't follow the herd like sh- with a sheep mentality like blind lemons. We think for ourselves. And as William Shakespeare said, boldness, be my friend. <laughs>